A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Long after any big war story is old news, it festers, and a psychic pus swells the mind. Good sense tells the reporter to be a professional and just live with it. If a construction worker drops a beam on his foot, he sees a doctor, goes to rehab, gets workers' compensation, and heals. If a war correspondent fries a few circuits, he sedates himself with whatever booze, drug, or quick lay is at hand and gets ready for the next deadline. After all, if he can't take it, there are lots of fresh bodies waiting in line to take his place. By one model for the treatment of post-traumatic stress, intervention is most effective if it is carried out soon after the trauma and close to where it was suffered, when the brain is undergoing chemical changes that can affect long-term damage. But I'd suffered so many shocks to the mind in numerous places over several years that I was a chronic case by the time I sat in Dr. Grinker's chair. Okay, so that's all from the 2007 memoir, Where War Lives, by Paul Watson. As a war correspondent for the Toronto Star and the LA Times, Paul covered conflict zones in Afghanistan, Rwanda, Somalia, Kosovo, Syria, and Iraq. He's perhaps best known for a graphic photograph he took of the corpse of an American soldier being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu as people cheered and danced. Paul Watson later said that as he took that photo, he could hear the voice of the dead soldier saying, if you do this, I will own you 
forever. According to an article in the Toronto Star, the public outrage that followed the publication of that photograph forced the Americans to end the U.S. military presence in Somalia. Paul Watson won a Pulitzer Prize for that picture. But when I contacted Paul Watson last month, I didn't intend to get into any of that. All I was looking to do was to follow up on a story that we did about him five years ago, after he suddenly resigned from the Toronto Star. Briefly, that story went like this. Paul was the Toronto Star's Arctic correspondent at the time. He was on a vessel that was looking to recover the lost ships of the British Franklin Expedition of 1845. Do you remember when Stephen Harper was was obsessed with finding those sunken ships? When they finally did find them, there was a media blackout imposed by the federal government on the sailors and engineers and civil servants who were there with Paul Watson in the Arctic so that the government could put out the message the way they wanted, which was through a Harper-affiliated, media-connected individual named John Geiger, who did the press for the shipwreck discovery. It was assumed and widely reported that John Geiger was there on the ship that made the triumphant discovery. But Paul Watson knew that he wasn't. Paul sent John Geiger some bracing questions about that. Three hours after he sent those questions, he got a reply. Not from John Geiger, but from his own boss, a Toronto Star editor, asking him what he was up to. Soon, his superiors at the Star forbid him to continue reporting that story. Paul Watson ended up quitting his staff job at the Toronto Star and abandoning his role as their most celebrated reporter in order to keep investigating. And that's when I talked to him last. He did finish that story. BuzzFeed published it, and it won a National Magazine Award for investigative reporting. And Paul Watson later published a massive book about the shipwrecks called Ice Ghosts, The Epic Hunt for the Lost Franklin Expedition. But neither that article or that book provided much clarity on just what happened behind the scenes at the Star. That's why I got back in touch with Paul, to find out if he ever got to the truth of that. And then something else emerged in our conversation, a surprising story about mental health in the newsroom and how news organizations deal with it. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Sam Bao, Dan Grant, Irfan Sheikh, Ben Coleman, Aidan Cloet, Genevieve Behrens, Megan Burley, and Wojtek. My name is Wojtek. I'm a graphic designer and web developer based in Halifax. I support Canada Land because I'm married to a journalist. I was introduced to her by another journalist in a bar full of journalists. So I like to note there are people out there keeping them honest. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does 
BetterHelp. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Long after any big war story is old news, it festers, and a psychic pus swells the mind. Good sense tells the reporter to be a professional and just live with it. If a construction worker drops a beam on his foot, he sees a doctor, goes to rehab, gets workers' compensation, and heals. If a war correspondent fries a few circuits, he sedates himself with whatever booze, drug, or quick lay is at hand and gets ready for the next deadline. After all, if he can't take it, there are lots of fresh bodies waiting in line to take his place. By one model for the treatment of post-traumatic stress, intervention is most effective if it is carried out soon after the trauma and close to where it was suffered, when the brain is undergoing chemical changes that can affect long-term damage. But I'd suffered so many shocks to the mind in numerous places over several years that I was a chronic case by the time I sat in Dr. Grinker's chair. Okay, so that's all from the 2007 memoir, Where War Lives, by Paul Watson. As a war correspondent for the Toronto Star and the LA Times, Paul covered conflict zones in Afghanistan, Rwanda, Somalia, Kosovo, Syria, and Iraq. He's perhaps best known for a graphic photograph he took of the corpse of an American soldier being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu as people cheered and danced. Paul Watson later said that as he took that photo, he could hear the voice of the dead soldier saying, if you do this, I will own you forever. According to an article in the Toronto Star, the public outrage that followed the publication of that photograph forced the Americans to end the U.S. military presence in Somalia. Paul Watson won a Pulitzer Prize for that picture. But when I contacted Paul Watson last month, I didn't intend to get into any of that. All I was looking to do was to follow up on a story that we did about him five years ago, after he suddenly resigned from the Toronto Star. Briefly, that story went like this. 
Paul was the Toronto Star's Arctic correspondent at the time. He was on a vessel that was looking to recover the lost ships of the British Franklin expedition of 1845. Do you remember when Stephen Harper was, was obsessed with finding those sunken ships? When they finally did find them, there was a media blackout imposed by the federal government on the sailors and engineers and civil servants who were there with Paul Watson in the Arctic so that the government could put out the message the way they wanted, which was through a Harper-affiliated, media-connected individual named John Geiger, who did the press for the shipwreck discovery. It was assumed and widely reported that John Geiger was there on the ship that made the triumphant discovery. But Paul Watson knew that he wasn't. Paul sent John Geiger some bracing questions about that. Three hours after he sent those questions, he got a reply. Not from John Geiger, but from his own boss, a Toronto Star editor, asking him what he was up to. Soon, his superiors at the Star forbid him to continue reporting that story. Paul Watson ended up quitting his staff job at the Toronto Star and abandoning his role as their most celebrated reporter in order to keep investigating. And that's when I talked to him last. He did finish that story. BuzzFeed published it, and it won a National Magazine Award for investigative reporting. And Paul Watson later published a massive book about the shipwrecks called Ice Ghosts, The Epic Hunt for the Lost Franklin Expedition. But neither that article or that book provided much clarity on just what happened behind the scenes at the Star. That's why I got back in touch with Paul, to find out if he ever got to the truth of that. And then something else emerged in our conversation, a surprising story about mental health in the newsroom and how news organizations deal with it. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Sam Bao, Dan Grant, Irfan Sheikh, Ben Coleman, Aidan Cloet, Genevieve Behrens, Megan Burley, and Wojtek. My name is Wojtek. I'm a graphic designer and web developer based in Halifax. I support Canada Land because I'm married to a journalist. I was introduced to her by another journalist in a bar full of journalists. So I like to note there are people out there keeping them honest. One final message before we start our show today. Oppo is back with its first 2020 episode and sitting down with Jen Gerson for the next couple of months as co-host, Sandy Garasino. You're going to want to listen to this. Check it out. Dropping on Tuesday, the new Oppo. My name is Paul Watson. I refer to myself as a recovering journalist. I dabble a bit now and then, but I mostly write books rather than the old rat race of daily news reporting. Oh, you're never out, Paul. There's no getting out. Well, that's what they say. Once a journalist, always a journalist. It's a curse. Paul, I want to start by playing you some audio tape of a pretty eventful moment in your life. Well, I assure you the email trail doesn't support that. All right. Well, pause here now to answer the question. So ask well, the question. Thank you, thank you for being clear about that. That is indeed what I thought the story was. I don't think that's a story for the star to engage in. Great. Thank you. You are both a betrayal to journalism and the great history of this newspaper. I wouldn't work for you even if you did today. So that is a recording of you in conversation with then-editor-in-chief of the, the Toronto Star, and that's you quitting your job when Michael Cook tells you that this isn't a story for the Star to engage in. 
and you call him a betrayal to journalism and to the history of the Toronto Star, and that's when you quit. How does it feel to listen to that now? I'm smiling, first of all, because I hear my voice breaking like an adolescent boy's, so that's kind of funny. But I'm really glad I did it. We live in a very difficult time, obviously, for journalism. Your listeners know that. Uh, it's all around us. And I've always thought that a comfortable journalist is just not a good look. Michael Cook, who's in that conversation, went on to some fancy position at, what's it called, the, the group that protects journalists around the world. You know, people die for this. So me quitting is pretty insignificant. The reason why you quit, as you told me at the time, and I'm still grateful that you gave me that interview, the reason you gave is that you wanted to investigate the links between the federal government of the day, Stephen Harper's government, and this John Geiger guy and the misinformation that was coming out around the discovery of these shipwrecks. I am fascinated by everything about this story, but these damn ships. I know you and many other people are really, really into shipwreck recovery and the whole mythology and history of, of the Franklin. There's a TV show about it, for, for, for God's sakes. But it's everything that's swirled around this that, as I dug into it, described for me a lot about how power works in Canada, how it worked back then. And I want to get into all of that. And I think that, you know, we, we have a five-year remove to reflect back on, on what that whole episode told us. But before we do, my brain is always focused on just answering questions that were unanswered. At the time, the big unanswered question, as you put it, you said when you finally do get to report the story that you couldn't report at the start, that they forbid you to report, you said that when people finally do read the reporting, they will ask two questions. The first is, how did our government let this happen? And the second question is, why didn't the star want this story? I have a pretty good answer and idea of, of the answer to the first question, but I still don't know the answer to the second one. Do you know why the star blocked you from reporting this for them? I believe that John Geiger was a friend of at least one editor or senior editors at the Toronto Star. And the reason I believe this is, A, they were very, very strong in ordering me to drop that story. And I had been working on it for a long time without telling anyone because I knew that there was a connection, a personal connection between him and at least one or more you know, senior editors at the Star. This is true because they're all part of the what used to be Southern News, which became Post Media. And they all came one by one into the Toronto Star, which which has a long history of being a you know, a, a media clique, if you want to call it that. People who worked for the Star over the decades were very proud of being part of a particular culture. And, you know, outsiders resented that culture. And when the Southern News people came in one by one, and this, this happened, by the way, when I was outside of the building. I was, at the time, working for the LA Times. So this element of it was explained to me by other people when I went back to the Star. They brought into the Star a Southern News culture. You know, this is a theory, so it can be disproven, but I believe there was a very strong resentment of people who wouldn't play the game their way. They resented people who, you know, who still stuck to that star culture. When I found out that there was a personal connection, an editor told me this in an email before the 
the ships were found. The point was made that, you know, I was having trouble getting security clearance, oddly enough, because I have the same name uh, as a wanted, you know, internationally wanted criminal who defends the environment, Paul Watson, who, you know, comes from Vancouver. So they wanted to make absolutely sure I wasn't that guy. I had to be fingerprinted, and all this was happening in the final hours before that ship, the icebreaker I was supposed to be on, was about to launch. So the email came, if you need help, you know, I know John Geiger, head of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, he can fix it. So that was in the back of my head when, you know, I was working on a story uh, in the initial stages because people, after the ships were found, were complaining about things he was saying publicly. They were misleading. Some of them were flat false. Now, you know, I, I'm a journalist of, of some experience. And if I have a suspicion that he has an inside track to senior editors at the Star, I'm not going to tell them that I'm working on that story. That's just smart journalism. And they held that against me in the end. They said I was secretly working on a story without approval. Well, you know, the, the Toronto Star may not like that, but I think the public expects it of us. If the truth is hard to get at, the public expects us to find a way to do it. And that's all I was doing. In the end, I think I was right. It's the only logical explanation. Why would they tell me to drop a story which was clearly important? It seems like at the time it was a very reasonable hypothesis that some sort of uh, personal influence was exerted, and that's why uh, you were told to stop. It seems reasonable to me now, but I am getting a sense that we are no clearer on having that nailed down now than we were five years ago, which is not terribly surprising. What was said on probably one phone call between two people who knew each other, those things are hard to have confirmed when you report things out. But we never got any closer to knowing exactly who called who or what was said. I was just curious if you had. I haven't. That's the only thing that makes sense. Otherwise, why would, why would they stop a story? And, you know, th this wasn't a polite sort of, hey, Paul, you know, can't you find something better to do? This was a suspended, without pay, a legalistic letter, which is sitting in front of me on my computer screen, which is very clearly written with an ear to a lawyer or lawyers, because the Toronto Star has a lot of them, to really make sure that I'm intimidated. And none of that makes sense unless there's high stakes. You know, the, in the end, this is a pretty low stakes story. As you said, who gives a F about sunken ships? I sure don't. In the end, the only thing I cared about was the Toronto Star's corruption. Wait a second, you wrote a huge book about the sunken ships. Well, I did because somebody said, you know, you ought to write a book. And, and so I thought, hey, you know, I like writing books. So, but, <laughs> but, but really, honestly, I didn't see a book in it right? until I realized that there's a thread from beginning to end, you know, the 19th century to the 21st, there's a thread of backstabbing, political manipulation, etc., surrounding the Franklin expedition yeah. for some reason. Yeah. So it's really not about sunken ships. It's a tale about how people will screw over other people, including men who are freezing and starving to death in the high Arctic. Some would argue, Paul, like hills to die on and, and battles worth uh, circumventing. Do you feel like this was the right one to go out on? 
Well, it's funny you use that phrase because the guy who was in Vancouver for CBC National interviewed me. It was clear he didn't really want to do it. And after the interview was over, this is immediately after I resigned, he said, why this hill to die on? I said what I think I said to you. I, there is no choice. You know, the, the newspaper says, cease all reporting in any way related to John Geiger and the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. That's a very legalistic way of saying, drop it. And so what am I supposed to do? Follow their edict and then show up to work the next day? If I did that, I'm not a journalist anymore. So there's no choice. It's not a hill to die on. It's are you a journalist or aren't you? Now, they could take the position that like, look, we, we tell reporters cover this, don't cover that all the time. It's in their discretion to allocate resources to some stories and not others. That's just the nature of it. And there is a, a hierarchical structure in journalism where you, you cover what your editor tells you to cover. Is it possible that you were misinterpreting simply them feeling like your, your skills and services were better uh, placed elsewhere? Uh, no, and, and here's why I, th I think that. If they had said, okay, you know, the, what you've told us so far is intriguing, but it's not a story, uh, we'll give you two weeks, report it out, see what you got, and we'll read it. That's what editors normally do. And to be very frank, as I always am, in the initial stages, I didn't have a lot. I had a very strong suspicion. And there was an obvious reason to have that suspicion. It's quite possible that after those two weeks, I wouldn't have enough. And I would have agreed with them. I would have said, I thought there was something there, but there isn't. Well, the fact is that as I dug deeper into it, it was obvious there was a story in it. And then when you dug deeper into it, it was obvious that you had an even better story. So as the facts rolled out, it was clear that they were not pursuing a story of significant public interest. It, it had nothing to do with the proper use of my time. The funny thing about this to me is the legalistic letter I get ordering me to cease and desist comes from an executive editor named Paul Woods. I know nothing about any journalism he's done, but at this point in 2015, you know, he handles personnel matters and negotiations with the union. So this guy is telling me, and I, I, I'm not bragging here, I'm just stating a fact. I spent a very large part of my journalistic career dealing with thugs and murderers telling me not to do things. And I went ahead and did them. So when some clown at a desk in Toronto thinks he can intimidate me with a letter written with lawyers in mind, that's humorous. I think I had the same response you did, which is that the more authoritarian and firm the resistance, the more you can't let it go. And when I started looking into this and was connecting with you and, and you had a willingness to get your story out, and I brought this up with you the last time we spoke, there was a whisper campaign against you and people were sending me anonymous notes saying, uh, we're colleagues of Paul's at the Star. We don't think you should be speaking with him because uh, he's not well and we, we're, we're concerned about him. And part of me thought, am I taking advantage of a situation here for content that uh, I shouldn't be taking advantage of? And then a bigger part of me thought, where is this coming from and why do people not want me to talk to Paul?
And, you know, by the way, you weren't the only one who was part of that whisper campaign. I, I found out from other people who I can't name because, the, the, you know, they provide some very important context to what was being spread, which just confirms absolutely your suspicion. And let me briefly tell you another story which makes that whisper campaign suggesting that somehow Paul's unstable, unstable mentally, and you know you really shouldn't, uh, you know, pursue this thing. This brief story will make that even more disgusting. I was the Arctic correspondent for the Toronto Star. The Toronto Star knows uh, that I suffer from post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sought psychiatric help, etc. And, you know, I've, I've written about this in my first book. I'm not trying to sell books, but there's an interesting science to this. Trauma locks itself at, at the cellular level in your amygdala, which is a little walnut-sized thing at the base of what scientists call the lizard brain, the ancient part of our, of our nervous system. Post-traumatic stress is not something floating around mysteriously in your head. It's a biochemical function that's locked in in the amygdala. And it's very hard to, to get rid of when it's, when it's locked there. So, you know, I, I still suffer it f- from it. If you ask me certain questions or say certain words, I'll start to cry. We, you saw that last time. The interesting part of this whisper campaign is go back a, a bit, um, you know, in time before that happened. I was given a heads up by my immediate supervisor that the senior editors of the star, Michael Cook, and others, that they were going to invite me out to dinner, and they were going to make a request. The heads up was that there was some kind of dispute within, as I remember it, the leadership of the Liberal Party of Canada. And the dispute centered around whether Canadian troops should stay in Afghanistan or be pulled out. And what the star wanted was coverage that would back one of those factions. And in order to do that through their news coverage, they needed a reporter there. And the guy based in New Delhi, India, who would have gone into Afghanistan, refused to go. So at the time, I was the Arctic correspondent. And this is troubling because the star knew that I suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder you know, a a large part of the damage that was done to my mind was done while an employee of the Toronto Star in Somalia, Rwanda, and elsewhere. To say, would you go back to Afghanistan for us, as they did at a dinner, uh, is disgusting to me in retrospect, because it's like heroin to a junkie. I would go cover a war in a second because I'm addicted to it. Mm-hmm. And they know that. But they also know or should know that re-exposing someone with post-traumatic stress related to war to more war is causing severe damage to that person's mind. And I'm not interested in labor law and other things. I'm interested in the morality of that. That's really disgusting. And I hate myself for having said yes. As I say the words, I'd like to fucking kill myself because people die for this. And I could have easily gotten good people killed, Afghans who who helped me do that work, for some silly little dispute that the star thinks it wants to use its news coverage 
to manipulate. It's it's really disgraceful. So you know the I told him I'm not going to do fluff for you. I'm not going to write propaganda, but I will cover it. And I asked them for this commitment. I said I won't even do it if you tell me I'm only going there for one trip. The only way I'll do this is if you tell me this is a long-term commitment. And they made that commitment. I recall that very vividly. Okay, Jesse here. I have to interrupt this interview because those were new allegations from Paul. And they sort of need to be addressed now rather than wait until the chat is done to tell you what the other side has to say. Those allegations being that the Toronto Star and its top editor, Michael Cook, knew that Paul Watson suffered from PTSD and sent him back into a conflict zone in Afghanistan anyways. And the accusation that the reason they did so was because they wanted coverage that would support a political position that the newspaper had taken. Now, some of that is almost impossible to prove or disprove. The stuff about Paul Watson's mental health, it's not something that an employer like the Toronto Star could talk to reporters about even if they wanted to. And sure enough, when I asked the Toronto Star, their spokesperson, Bob Hepburn, told me, as we said back in 2015 when Mr. Watson resigned from the Star, we do not comment on personnel matters. So no surprise there. But we had to ask one other person for comment. Former Toronto Star Editor-in-Chief Michael Cook. Full disclosure, I worked with Michael Cook for a very short time on the Jean Gameshi story, and it was not the smoothest working relationship. That being said, we parted on civil terms, and whenever I've run into him since, we've always been friendly with each other. And, and for what it's worth, I happen to like Michael Cook, and I'll always be grateful to him that when I first emailed him about the Jean Gameshi story, he wrote me back and took on that story. Okay, end of disclosure. I had an obligation to ask Michael Cook if what Paul Watson told me was true. But I didn't expect a reply. I mean, he could have just let the Toronto Star answer for him. But he did get back to me. Michael Cook, once again, does not work for the Toronto Star anymore. And he did not rely on employer-employee confidentiality as a reason to say nothing. Here's what he did say. The slanderous suggestion that I knowingly sent a PTSD-damaged reporter to Afghanistan is preposterous and insulting. Also, if the Toronto Star had or has a political agenda in Afghanistan, this is the first I'm hearing of it. Paul's further bizarre accusation that I spiked a story because a subject had some kind of influence over the paper will be news to anyone I have worked with. I have no idea what Paul's agenda is, but I continue to wish him well. You too. Michael. So there you go. That is uh, an emphatic, complete denial. But it's a surprising one. Because Paul's post-traumatic stress disorder was not a secret. I mean, he'd written a book about it. Here he is on NPR talking about his struggles. I really tend to be solitary. You know, I, I stick to my family, my wife, my son. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I, I was treated by a psychiatrist for post-traumatic stress disorder and chronic depression years before this incident and actually after this incident. His memoir, Where War Lives, was not a minor release. It was later number three on McLean's list of the top 10 books of the decade. The Toronto Star itself covered Paul and his book, reporting that Paul's experiences as a war correspondent left him emotionally scarred to the point where he needed psychiatric help. That ran under the headline, Afghanistan Keeps Watson Up at Night. 
I wrote back to Michael Cook to ask him if he was unaware of what his own newspaper had reported about Paul Watson, if he was unaware of all of this when he sent Paul Watson back to Afghanistan. This time, he did not reply. Which left me to wonder, like, is it possible that Michael Cook was somehow unaware of all of that information about his own marquee reporter? Watson was the only Pulitzer Prize winner who worked at the Star. The Star celebrated and publicized Paul Watson's work and accolades as their own. Could Michael Cook have not known those things about him? You know what? It's possible. Paul Watson's memoir came out in 2007. Michael Cook joined the Toronto Star in 2009. I guess he could have missed it. And I think that lacking evidence to the contrary, he deserves the benefit of the doubt. But that raises something else entirely. If Michael Cook didn't know, how come nobody told him? There would have been several other tour star managers involved in sending Paul Watson back to Afghanistan. There were arrangements to be made, expense accounts, fixers, uh, human resources, other editors who received Paul's copy. Is it possible that no one involved with any of that said anything? Sadly, I find that credible too. The Toronto Star's deniability here rests on a sad truth. Most newsrooms historically ignored the mental wellness of their reporters, and many still do. Paul Watson, meanwhile, is out of the daily news game, and he thinks he's better off for it. Back to my interview with him. I've essentially walked away from, I mean, not essentially, I walked away from daily news reporting. I don't do daily news reporting anymore. But I'll tell you, something really healthy happened after I did that. I looked at news consumption just as an ordinary consumer. And I started asking myself, you know, how much of this do I need? I got down close to zero. Most of it is just garbage. You don't need it. The best thing about it is if you turn it off, or at least turn the volume down, you feel better. You know, I checked this out. There's actually scientific research that says that. If you don't expose yourself to negative news in the morning, and then go to work, you're more productive. I'm kind of evangelistic about this now. People look at me like I have two heads. I just say, turn it off. You don't need it. This is important now because in Canada, our government is going to spend a large amount of tax dollars to support what the newspaper industry claimed they are, and that is a pillar of democracy. Mm -hmm. Well, I urge your listeners to do this very simple experiment. Since we're talking about the Toronto Star, just pick at random any day of the week, go buy a copy of the Toronto Star, spread it out on the kitchen table, and just take a pen and go from story to story... And just put a check mark for things that you think are essential to democracy. And then when you're finished, clip out the stuff that has a check mark. Stack that up against what you've got left of the newspaper. You're going to see there's not a lot there. And yet, tax dollars, a large amount of them, are, are going to go to prop these people up. And, you know, the j- journalists have this habit of referring to tax dollars as if they're sort of mana from heaven, as if they materialize out of the ether. This, in large part, is the money of hard-working people, people who, who have two and three jobs to pay the rent, people who worry about their kids' future. That money should be spent very carefully. And if the Toronto Star is going to take one cent of those people's money, then how about the Star Trust? the people who own the A-shares, the core of the Toronto Star Corporation, the Hondricks, the Atkinson-Hindmarshes, 
the Campbells, the rich people, how much money are they going to put on the table as they take the money of hardworking people to prop up this so-called pillar of democracy? I think you put your finger on a, a core strain right now in, in this conversation we're having about it. The news industry writ large around the world, but specifically in Canada with this bailout, keeps saying, we're essential, you need us, we're good for you. And the public, backed up with a growing body of research, says, actually, you're making us sick. Right. <laughs> and the way you define the problem is not the way others have, which is to say that getting news about what's happening in, in a world that is in rough shape is bad for your well-being and stressing you out. What you're saying is that regardless of whether the news is worrying or reassuring or positive or negative, it simply ain't essential news for, for democracy. And that, and that public good argument doesn't match what we're actually publishing. And worse, they are actually sucking the oxygen out of things that are worthwhile. You know, startups like yours and others that are really intensely focused on disruption of the comfortable institutions we have. Uh, and, and they're extremely comfortable in this country because they haven't been disrupted for a very long time. Uh, you know, compared to the United States, for instance, which is not perfect, but has always had a very, very rich and energetic news media compared to Canada. They're sucking the oxygen out of independents like you and others who are focused on things that do mean something, investigative journalism, others. If, for example, you know, you, you're a startup and you crowdfund, you're asking the public, not taking their money without their permission, you're saying to them directly, we would like to investigate issue X. If you think that's worthwhile and essential to your daily life, send us a check and we'll do it. That's a far better model than a bunch of rich people getting access to the highest levels of government and then marketing. Let's not forget this element of it. They had a marketing campaign that very cleverly tried to convince people we're a pillar of democracy. That's just laughable. Read these newspapers. Pillars of democracy, come on. That implies Greek marble or something. It ain't Greek marble. Paul, I don't know if I'm any clearer on the mysteries that, uh, that made me reach out to you again and talk about this old story, but it's always really interesting to talk to you, and I always learn something. What are you working on now? I'm working on a new book. The working title is Into a Dark Wind. Now, if that doesn't grab you, what would? It's a, a true story about two journalists. I won't tell you who they are. They were probably the greatest war correspondents of their age. And no, it's not Ernest Hemingway and Martha Gellhorn. But they're secret lovers. They're married to other people. And they're, one or both of them are spies. And there's Nazis in it. So I, I think it's a ripping good tale just requires a lot of deep research. Um, one element of, uh, I'm waiting for the U.S. government to declassify uh, a bunch of documents for me, which is a long, hard fight. But as the pieces fall into place, I think it's going to be a good story. I'm glad to hear you still got somebody to fight. It's important. Thanks. And, and no better op opponent than the uh, FBI uh, and, you know, the U.S. government. They're fun ones to deal with. Good luck, Paul. I'll be looking for it. Thanks, Jesse. And back to you. Good for what you do.
That is your Canada Land Show. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com, where you can find the return of Oppo with Jen Gerson and Sandy Garasino. Check that out. This episode is produced by Kevin Sexton and Jordan Cornish. Our senior producer is Kasia Mihailovich. Managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, if you want ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us at patreon.com slash canadaland. One final message before we start our show today. Oppo is back with its first 2020 episode and sitting down with Jen Gerson for the next couple of months as co-host, Sandy Garasino. You're going to want to listen to this. Check it out. Dropping on Tuesday, the new Oppo. My name is Paul Watson. I refer to myself as a recovering journalist. I dabble a bit now and then, but I mostly write books rather than the old rat race of daily news reporting. Oh, you're never out, Paul. There's no getting out. Well, that's what they say. Once a journalist, always a journalist. It's a curse. Paul, I want to start by playing you some audio tape of a pretty eventful moment in your life. So let me tell you, uh, the email trail actually is... Well, I assure you, the email trail doesn't support that. All right. Well, pause here now to answer the question. Right. So ask well, thank, you, question thank, you, thank, you, thank you for being clear about that. That is indeed what I thought the story was. I don't think that's a story for the star to engage in. Great. Thank you. You are both a betrayal to journalism and the great history of this newspaper. I wouldn't work for you even if you did it. So that is a recording of you in conversation with then-editor-in-chief of uh, the Toronto Star, and that's you quitting your job when Michael Cook tells you that this isn't a story for the Star to engage in, and you call him a betrayal to journalism and to the history of the Toronto Star, and that's when you quit. How does it feel to listen to that now? I'm smiling, first of all, because I hear my voice breaking like an adolescent boy's, so that's kind of funny. But... I'm really glad I did it. We live in a very difficult time, obviously, for journalism. Your listeners know that. Uh, it's all around us. And I've always thought that a comfortable journalist is just not a good look. Michael Cook, who's in that conversation, went on to some fancy position at, what's it called, the, the group that protects journalists around the world. You know, people die for this. So me quitting is pretty insignificant. The reason why you quit, as you told me at the time, and I'm still grateful that you gave me that interview, the reason you gave is that you wanted to investigate the links between the federal government of the day, Stephen Harper's government, and this John Geiger guy and the misinformation that was coming out around the discovery of these shipwrecks. I am fascinated by everything about this story, but these damn ships. I know you and many other people are really, really into shipwreck recovery and the whole mythology and history of, of the Franklin. There's a TV show about it, for, for, for God's sakes. But it's everything that's swirled around this that, as I dug into it, described for me a lot about how power works in Canada, how it worked back then. And I want to get into all of that. And I think that, you know, we, we have a five-year remove to reflect back on, on what that whole episode told us. 
But before we do, my brain is always focused on just answering questions that were unanswered. At the time, the big unanswered question, as you put it, you said when you finally do get to report the story that you couldn't report at the start, that they forbid you to report, you said that when people finally do read the reporting, they will ask two questions. The first is, how did our government let this happen? And the second question is, why didn't the star want this story? I have a pretty good answer and idea of, of the answer to the first question, but I still don't know the answer to the second one. Do you know why the star blocked you from reporting this for them? I believe that John Geiger was a friend of at least one editor or senior editors at the Toronto Star. And the reason I believe this is, A, they were very, very strong in ordering me to drop that story. And I had been working on it for a long time without telling anyone because I knew that there was a connection, a personal connection between him and at least one or more you know, senior editors at the Star. This is true because... They're all part of the what used to be Southern News, which became Post Media. And they all came one by one into the Toronto Star, which, which has a long history of being a, you know, a, a media clique, if you want to call it that. People who worked for the Star over the decades were very proud of being part of a particular culture. And, you know, outsiders resented that culture. And when the Southern news people came in one by one, and this, this happened, by the way, when I was outside of the building, I was at the time working for the LA Times. So this element of it was explained to me by other people when I went back to the Star. They brought into the Star a Southern news culture. You know, th this is a theory, so it can be disproven. But I believe there was a very strong resentment of people who wouldn't play the game their way. They resented people who you know, who still stuck to that star culture. When I found out that there was a personal connection, an editor told me this in an email before the, the ships were found. The point was made that, you know, I was having trouble getting security clearance, oddly enough, because I have the same name uh, as a wanted, you know, internationally wanted criminal who defends the environment, Paul Watson, who, you know, comes from Vancouver. So they wanted to make absolutely sure I wasn't that guy. I had to be fingerprinted. And all this was happening in the final hours before that ship, the icebreaker I was supposed to be on, was about to launch. So the email came, if you need help, you know, I know John Geiger, head of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. He can fix it. So that was in the back of my head when, you know, I was working on a story uh, in the initial stages because people after the ships were found, were complaining about things he was saying publicly. They were misleading. Some of them were flat false. Now, you know, I, I'm a journalist of, of some experience. And if I have a suspicion that he has an inside track to senior editors at the Star, I'm not going to tell them that I'm working on that story. That's just smart journalism. And they held that against me in the end. They said I was secretly working on a story without approval. Well, you know, the, the Toronto Star may not like that, but I think the public expects it of us. If the truth is hard to get at, the public expects us to find a way to do it. And that's all I was doing. In the end, I think I was right. It's the only logical explanation. Why would they tell me to drop a story which was clearly important?
it seems like at the time it was a very reasonable hypothesis that some sort of uh, personal influence was exerted and that's why uh, you were told to stop. It seems reasonable to me now, but I am getting a sense that we are no clearer on having that nailed down now than we were five years ago, which is not terribly surprising. What was said on probably one phone call between two people who knew each other, those things are hard to have confirmed when you report things out. But we never got any closer to knowing exactly who called who or what was said. I was just curious if you had. I haven't. That's the only thing that makes sense. Otherwise, why would, why would they stop a story? And, you know, th this wasn't a polite sort of, hey, Paul, you know, can't you find something better to do? This was a suspended, without pay, a legalistic letter, which is sitting in front of me on my computer screen, which is very clearly written with an ear to a lawyer or lawyers, because the Toronto Star has a lot of them, to really make sure that I'm intimidated. And none of that makes sense unless there's high stakes. You know, the, in the end, this is a pretty low-stakes story. As you said, who gives a F about sunken ships? I sure don't. In the end, the only thing I cared about was the Toronto Star's corruption. Wait a second. You wrote a huge book about the sunken ships. Well, I did because somebody said, you know, you ought to write a book. And, and so I thought, hey, you know, I like writing books. So, but, <laughs> but, but really, honestly, I didn't see a book in it right? until I realized that there's a thread from beginning to end, you know, the 19th century to the 21st, there's a thread of backstabbing, political manipulation, etc., surrounding the Franklin expedition yeah. for some reason. Yeah. So it's really not about sunken ships. It's a tale about how people will screw over other people, including men who are freezing and starving to death in the high Arctic. Some would argue, Paul, like hills to die on and, and battles worth uh, circumventing. Do you feel like this was the right one to go out on? Well, it's funny you use that phrase because the guy who was in Vancouver for CBC National interviewed me. It was clear he didn't really want to do it. And after the interview was over, this is immediately after I resigned, he said, why this hill to die on? I said, what I think I said to you, I, there is no choice. You know, the, the newspaper says, cease all reporting in any way related to John Geiger and the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. That's a very legalistic way of saying, drop it. And so what am I supposed to do? Follow their edict and then show up to work the next day? If I did that, I'm not a journalist anymore. So there's no choice. It's not a hill to die on. It's are you a journalist or aren't you? Now, they could take the position that like, look, we, we tell reporters cover this, don't cover that all the time. It's in their discretion to allocate resources to some stories and not others. That's just the nature of it. And there is a, a hierarchical structure in journalism where you, you cover what your editor tells you to cover. Is it possible that you were misinterpreting simply them feeling like your, your skills and services were better uh, placed elsewhere? Uh, no. And, and here's why I think that. If they had said, okay, you know, the, what you've told us so far is intriguing, but it's not a story. Uh, we'll give you two weeks, report it out, see what you got, and we'll read it. That's what an editors normally do. And to be very frank, as I always am, in the initial stages, I didn't have a lot. I had a very strong suspicion. 
and there was an obvious reason to have that suspicion. It's quite possible that after those two weeks, I wouldn't have enough, and I would have agreed with him. I would have said, I thought there was something there, but there isn't. Well, the fact is that as I dug deeper into it, it was obvious there was a story in it. And then when you dug deeper into it, it was obvious that you had an even better story. So as the facts rolled out, it was clear that they were not pursuing a story of significant public interest. It it had nothing to do with the proper use of my time. The funny thing about this to me is the legalistic letter I get ordering me to cease and desist comes from an executive editor named Paul Woods. I know nothing about any journalism he's done, but at this point in 2015, you know, he handles personnel matters and negotiations with the union. So this guy is telling me, and I'm not bragging here, I'm just stating a fact, I spent a very large part of my journalistic career dealing with thugs and murderers telling me not to do things, and I went ahead and did them. So when some clown at a desk in Toronto thinks he can intimidate me with a letter written with lawyers in mind, that's humorous. I think I had the same response you did, which is that the more authoritarian and firm the resistance, the more you can't let it go. And when I started looking into this and was connecting with you and and you had a willingness to get your story out, and I brought this up with you the last time we spoke, there was a whisper campaign against you and people were sending me anonymous notes saying, uh, we're colleagues of Paul's at the Star. We don't think you should be speaking with him because uh, he's not well and we're, we're concerned about him. And part of me thought, Am I taking advantage of a situation here for content that uh, I shouldn't be taking advantage of? And then a bigger part of me thought, where is this coming from and why do people not want me to talk to Paul? And, you know, by the way, you weren't the only one who was part of that whisper campaign. I I found out from other people who I can't name because, you know, they provide some very important context to what was being spread which just confirms absolutely your suspicion. And let me briefly tell you another story which makes that whisper campaign suggesting that somehow Paul's unstable, unstable mentally, and, you know, you really shouldn't, uh, you know, pursue this thing. This brief story will make that even more disgusting. I was the Arctic correspondent for the Toronto Star. The Toronto Star knows uh, that I suffer from post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sought psychiatric help, etc. And, you know, I've, I've written about this in my first book. I'm not trying to sell books, but there's an interesting science to this. Trauma locks itself at, at the cellular level in your amygdala, which is a little walnut-sized thing at the base of what scientists call the lizard brain, the ancient part of our, of our nervous system. Post-traumatic stress is not something floating around mysteriously in your head. It's a biochemical function that's locked in in the amygdala. And it's very hard to, to get rid of when it's, when it's locked there. So, you know, I, I still suffer it f- from it. If you ask me certain questions or say certain words, I'll start to cry. We, you saw that last time. The interesting part of this whisper campaign is go back a, a bit, um, you know, in time before that happened. I was given a heads up by my immediate supervisor. 
that the senior editors of the star, Michael Cook and others, that they were going to invite me out to dinner and they were going to make a request. The heads up was that there was some kind of dispute within, as I remember it, the leadership of the Liberal Party of Canada. And the dispute centered around whether Canadian troops should stay in Afghanistan or be pulled out. And what the Star wanted was coverage that would back one of those factions. And in order to do that through their news coverage, they needed a reporter there. And the guy based in New Delhi, India, who would have gone into Afghanistan, refused to go. So at the time, I was the Arctic correspondent. And this is troubling because the star knew that I suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, a, a large part of the damage that was done to my mind was done while an employee of the Toronto Star in Somalia, Rwanda, and elsewhere. To say, would you go back to Afghanistan for us, as they did at a dinner, uh, is disgusting to me in retrospect because it's like heroin to a junkie. I would go cover a war in a second because I'm addicted to it, mm -hmm. and they know that. But they also know or should know that re-exposing someone with post-traumatic stress related to war to more war is causing severe damage to that person's mind. And I'm not interested in labor law and other things. I'm interested in the morality of that. That's really disgusting. And I hate myself for having said yes. As I say the words, I'd like to fucking kill myself because people die for this. And I could have easily gotten good people killed, Afghans who, who helped me do that work, for some silly little dispute that the star thinks it wants to use its news coverage to manipulate. It's, it's really disgraceful. So, you know, the I told him, I'm not going to do fluff for you. I'm not going to write propaganda, but I will cover it. And I asked them for this commitment. I said, I won't even do it if you tell me I'm only going there for one trip. The only way I'll do this is if you tell me this is a long-term commitment. And they made that commitment. I recall that very vividly. Okay, Jesse here. I have to interrupt this interview because those were new allegations from Paul. And they sort of need to be addressed now rather than wait until the chat is done to tell you what the other side has to say. Those allegations being that the Toronto Star and its top editor, Michael Cook, knew that Paul Watson suffered from PTSD and sent him back into a conflict zone in Afghanistan anyways. And the accusation that the reason they did so was because they wanted coverage that would support a political position that the newspaper had taken. Now, some of that is almost impossible to prove or disprove. The stuff about Paul Watson's mental health, it's not something that an employer like the Toronto Star could talk to reporters about, even if they wanted to. And sure enough, when I asked the Toronto Star, their spokesperson, Bob Hepburn, told me, as we said back in 2015, when Mr. Watson resigned from the Star, we do not comment on personnel matters. So no surprise there. But we had to ask one other person for comment. Former Toronto Star Editor-in-Chief Michael Cook. Full disclosure, I worked with Michael Cook for a very short time on the Jean Gameshi story, and it was not the smoothest working relationship. 
That being said, we parted on civil terms, and whenever I've run into him since, we've always been friendly with each other. And and for what it's worth, I happen to like Michael Cook, and I'll always be grateful to him that when I first emailed him about the Gian Gameshi story, he wrote me back and took on that story. Okay, end of disclosure. I had an obligation to ask Michael Cook if what Paul Watson told me was true. But I didn't expect a reply. I mean, he could have just let the Toronto Star answer for him. But he did get back to me. Michael Cook, once again, does not work for the Toronto Star anymore. And he did not rely on employer-employee confidentiality as a reason to say nothing. Here's what he did say. The slanderous suggestion that I knowingly sent a PTSD-damaged reporter to Afghanistan is preposterous and insulting. Also, if the Toronto Star had or has a political agenda in Afghanistan, this is the first I'm hearing of it. Paul's further bizarre accusation that I spiked a story because a subject had some kind of influence over the paper will be news to anyone I have worked with. I have no idea what Paul's agenda is, but I continue to wish him well. You too. Michael. So there you go. That is uh, an emphatic, complete denial. But it's a surprising one. Because Paul's post-traumatic stress disorder was not a secret. I mean, he'd written a book about it. Here he is on NPR talking about his struggles. I really tend to be solitary. You know, I, I stick to my family, my wife, my son. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I, I was treated by a psychiatrist for post-traumatic stress disorder and chronic depression years before this incident and actually after this incident. His memoir, Where War Lives, was not a minor release. It was later number three on McLean's list of the top ten books of the decade. The Toronto Star itself covered Paul and his book, reporting that Paul's experiences as a war correspondent left him emotionally scarred to the point where he needed psychiatric help. That ran under the headline, Afghanistan Keeps Watson Up at Night. I wrote back to Michael Cook to ask him if he was unaware of what his own newspaper had reported about Paul Watson, if he was unaware of all of this when he sent Paul Watson back to Afghanistan. This time, he did not reply. Which left me to wonder, like, is it possible that Michael Cook was somehow unaware of all of that information about his own marquee reporter? Watson was the only Pulitzer Prize winner who worked at the Star. The Star celebrated and publicized Paul Watson's work and accolades as their own. Could Michael Cook have not known those things about him? You know what? It's possible. Paul Watson's memoir came out in 2007. Michael Cook joined the Toronto Star in 2009. I guess he could have missed it. And I think that lacking evidence to the contrary, he deserves the benefit of the doubt. But that raises something else entirely. If Michael Cook didn't know, how come nobody told him? There would have been several other Tour Star managers involved in sending Paul Watson back to Afghanistan. There were arrangements to be made, expense accounts, fixers, uh, human resources, other editors who received Paul's copy. Is it possible that no one involved with any of that said anything? Sadly, I find that credible too. The Toronto Star's deniability here rests on a sad truth. Most newsrooms historically ignored the mental wellness of their reporters, and many still do. Paul Watson, meanwhile, is out of the daily news game, and he thinks he's better off for it. Back to my interview with him. I've essentially walked away from... Not essentially. I walked away from daily news reporting. I don't do daily news reporting anymore. 
But I'll tell you, something really healthy happened after I did that. I looked at news consumption just as an ordinary consumer. And I started asking myself, you know, how much of this do I need? I got down close to zero. Most of it is just garbage. You don't need it. The best thing about it is if you turn it off, or at least turn the volume down, you feel better. You know, I checked this out. There's actually scientific research that says that. If you don't expose yourself to negative news in the morning and then go to work, you're more productive. I'm kind of evangelistic about this now. People look at me like I have two heads. I just say, turn it off. You don't need it. This is important now because in Canada, our government is going to spend a large amount of tax dollars to support what the newspaper industry claimed they are, and that is a pillar of democracy. Mm -hmm. Well, I urge your listeners to do this very simple experiment. Since we're talking about the Toronto Star, just pick at random any day of the week, go buy a copy of the Toronto Star, spread it out on the kitchen table, and just take a pen and go from story to story and just put a check mark for things that you think are essential to democracy. And then when you're finished, clip out the stuff that has a check mark. Stack that up against what you've got left of the newspaper. You're going to see there's not a lot there. And yet, tax dollars, a large amount of them, are, are going to go to prop these people up. And, you know, the, the journalists have this habit of referring to tax dollars as if they're sort of mana from heaven, as if they materialize out of the ether. This, in large part, is the money of hard-working people, people who, who have two and three jobs to pay their rent, people who worry about their kids' future. That money should be spent very carefully. And if the Toronto Star is going to take one cent of those people's money, then how about the Star Trust, the people who own the A-shares, the core of the Toronto Star Corporation, the Hondricks, the atkinson Hindmarshes, the Campbells, the rich people? How much money are they going to put on the table as they take the money of hardworking people to prop up this so-called pillar of democracy? I think you put your finger on a, a core strain right now in, in this conversation we're having about it. The news industry writ large around the world, but specifically in Canada with this bailout, keeps saying, we're essential, you need us, we're good for you. And the public, backed up with a growing body of research, says, actually, you're making us sick. Right. <laughs> and the way you define the problem is not the way others have, which is to say that getting news about what's happening in, in a world that is in rough shape is bad for your well-being and stressing you out. What you're saying is that regardless of whether the news is worrying or reassuring or positive or negative, it simply ain't essential news for, for democracy. And that, and that public good argument doesn't match what we're actually publishing. And worse, they are actually sucking the oxygen out of things that are worthwhile. You know, startups like yours and others that are really intensely focused on disruption of the comfortable institutions we have. Uh, and, and they're extremely comfortable in this country because they haven't been disrupted for a very long time. Uh, you know, compared to the United States, for instance, which is not perfect, but has always had a very, very rich and energetic news media compared to Canada. They're sucking the oxygen out of independence like you and others 
who are focused on things that do mean something, investigative journalism, others. If, for example, you know, you're a startup and you crowdfund, you're asking the public, not taking their money without their permission, you're saying to them directly, we would like to investigate issue X. If you think that's worthwhile and essential to your daily life, send us a check and we'll do it. That's a far better model than a bunch of rich people getting access to the highest levels of government and then marketing. Let's not forget this element of it. They had a marketing campaign that very cleverly tried to convince people we're a pillar of democracy. That's just laughable. Read these newspapers. Pillars of democracy, come on. That implies Greek marble or something. It ain't Greek marble. Paul, I don't know if I'm any clearer on the mysteries that uh, that made me reach out to you again and talk about this old story, but it's always really interesting to talk to you, and I always learn something. What are you working on now? I'm working on a new book. The working title is Into a Dark Wind. Now, if that doesn't grab you, what would? It's a, a true story about two journalists. I won't tell you who they are. They were probably the greatest war correspondents of their age, and no, it's not Ernest Hemingway and Martha Gellhorn, but they're secret lovers. They're married to other people, and they're, one or both of them are spies, and there's Nazis in it. So I, I think it's a ripping good tale. It just requires a lot of deep research. Um, one element of uh, I'm waiting for the U.S. government to declassify uh, a bunch of documents for me, which is a long, hard fight. But as the pieces fall into place, I think it's going to be a good story. I'm glad to hear you still got somebody to fight. It's important. Thanks. And, and no better opponent than the uh, FBI uh, and, you know, the U.S. government. They're fun ones to deal with. Good luck, Paul. I'll be looking for it. Thanks, Jesse. And back to you. Good for what you do. That is your Canada Land Show. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com, where you can find the return of Oppo with Jen Gerson and Sandy Garasino. Check that out. This episode is produced by Kevin Sexton and Jordan Cornish. Our senior producer is Kasia Mihailovic. Managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, if you want ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us at patreon.com slash canadaland. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join.
and thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.